Leonard Cohen suggested there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. Here again, back again, um, this time with a fellow named Roger Martin, whom I met through Biz Catalyst, if I remember correctly, which I still do most of the time, I think, although nobody would tell me if I didn't. So that's a that's a uh, non-set of information. But Roger and I had a conversation last week, or, yeah, earlier this week, um, just about stuff in general. And I had a great time, and I intend to have another one today. So, Roger, if you would just tell people how you got here. What's your story, man? Oh, thanks, Mac. It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. So, um, so I grew up in uh, what you might call a blue-collar family in uh, industrial South Wales, a place called Barry near Cardiff. Um, had a um, pretty normal upbringing really um by i ended up qualifying as an accountant so I, I i went into um the accountancy profession uh found the examination process really boring really difficult <laughs> but i got there i got there and i ended up working in a um in a business culture that you could best describe as toxic so authoritarian CEO. Um, I worked in an accounts function that I often used to describe as being um, being an, uh, in an ammunition factory in a war I didn't want to belong in. Oh. And what I meant by that was I was producing um, results, accounts every month showing how well certain managers had performed and not performed. And the, the reports I produced, the CEO would take those who'd done well out to lunch and lord them and bring into his office those who'd not done so well and beat them up verbally. And I, and I would get, um, I'd get calls from grown men. I was, I was, a, I was in my early 20s at the time. Um, saying, look, can we delay expenditure to next month or can we pull some income forward so that I escape the wrath of the boss? Um, and I just thought this is no way to run an organisation. You know, it's um, it just doesn't, it just jarred. And um, so I got the opportunity to, to run a training programme um, and it was, I can remember it to this day, it was, it, there was a particular department that had a high turnover because the work was ostensibly data entry. It was boring. People came and they left. And I was talking to somebody from what was known as the personnel department in those days, not human resources, right? So <laughs> this is how far back we're going. Um, so I'm, I'm talking in the um, early 80s now. And um, I put this course together, which essentially demonstrated to these bored young ladies, data entry operatives, what the consequences were of the data they produced not being right. 
and it was an a, an attempt to show how the whole con- her company could go under if their work wasn't done to the best of their ability. And um, it was a way of bigging them up and making their their role feel important. Um, and I just loved it. <laughs> I just loved the whole bit of talking to participants before they came, trying to understand where they were at, using my financial knowledge to build the course. Um, and I'd found my vocation, basically. I'd found what lit my heart up rather than what um, what I was doing just for the paycheck every month, which was the, the accounting bit of it. So that took me, fortunately, the... The company I worked for at the time then created a role for me um, at their management training college, um, which was a beautiful mansion house in um, Berkshire. Uh, my office used to overlook the croquet lawn. You know, just imagine this. This it was a house that once belonged to the Singer family, who were famous for making sewing machines. So beautiful location. Um, ready-made conference centre. Um, I, was, I was to run leadership and finance for the non-financial manager training uh, for four days a week, and I did the accounts for the college on the fifth day of the week. So I was in my dream job. Um, and then my secondment there came to an end after five years. Uh, I had great time there, you know, doing outward-bound leadership development, orienteering, um, teaching leadership as well as finance. It was just just a joyous time. Uh, and then my time there came to an end and the company asked me to go and set up a computer security audit function, which I did. And then I knew where I knew where my heart was. You know, my heart was in people, it was in change, it was in development. And um, so I left and went self-employed. And I've been gigging ever since. You know, that was 1989. Um, so I've worked in in the telecom sector. I've worked in the wind turbine sector. I've worked in healthcare. I've worked in construction. I suppose the theme, if there was a theme that was um, running through all that work, it would be supporting people who are technically brilliant, be they tax inspectors or doctors or engineers, um, accountants, people who are technically brilliant step into the leadership role where the transition is about using your expertise less and less and uh, engaging people in a sense of purpose and, you know, developing a culture with them that's conducive to producing great work. So that that's those kinds of transitions, if you like, is uh, has been the theme of my work across the last 30 years or so. And um, in that time, I've seen lots of fads and, and trends come and go. Okay, so there was a big move into competencies and defining behavior and um, that came out of the sort of Pavlovian and Skinner behaviorist schools, you know, of uh, breaking behavior down and testing everybody. And um, it it was a very mechanistic view of human nature. 
Um, and then we had the whole total quality management and zero defect. Um, and then we had business process re-engineering, which took everything back to, um, you know, charting what adds value for customers and building organizations around that. And that on the back of that came lean. And then we've had neuro-linguistic programming and we've had cognitive behavioral therapy um, and many different strands of, of work. And um, about six years ago, I had seven years ago, actually now, I had a bit of a wake-up call. Um, I, I was, I was doing some follow-up work with some participants who'd been on a year-long course, and this was uh, that I designed and got other people to run. And we were six months after the course had ended, and, and the conversation would go something like, "Well, how are things, Mac?" And a response would be, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no." Not good, really. Why not? Well, got a new boss. Um, resources are stretched. Being asked to do more with less. Competition is is higher, more intense. Um, it's tough. And I was left there thinking, well, if you if you were um, using what we taught you about personality differences and personality types. Maybe this relationship the boss with the boss needn't be so fractious as you're describing it. And if you were using the tools we gave you on strategy, then maybe you'd have better responses to this competitive environment that you're describing. Um, and if you learned what we talked to you about conflict management or um, collaboration, then some of these tensions you seem to be experiencing wouldn't be so so prevalent and of course the response to that was oh no roger roger what you did on the course was fantastic right we had a really it was really useful but what dawned on me was useful is not the same as transformative you know when it when it matters it, it isn't really changing the way people show up uh, to these challenging situations so i, I moved to I moved away from what I've been doing and I started to study philosophy and, and, um, and neuroscience. And I think there's a coming together of those two fields, um, which my central query was, um, my central question was, why do we experience life the way we do? And, and there was much I found there that was sort of eye-opening and, and life-changing in many ways. And the main one being that um, you know, our experience is an inside-out, not outside-in phenomenon. So it, it always looks as though if I'm angry or upset, somebody else has caused that. But when you, when you step back from that, um, it's not what others have done or not done. It's the, it's the perceptions I have about them that's creating the the inner disquiet, the, the, the turbulence. Um, and seeing that in some detail um, completely alters the emotional landscape from which people live from, uh, and me too. And um, it's, 
you know, I had, a, a, you know, in my personal life across this period, I've been divorced twice. I had two children. I have stepchildren. Um, and the first divorce, I was estranged from my first two daughters, my natural daughters, for 24 years. I mean, we've reunited now and, and we've been back together for, well, since 2007, so 14 years, and things are fine. But the gap was hard, and it um, it caused a lot of probably too much drinking, and and what came with that was was a, I suffered depression quite a lot, um, which I medicated for from time to time. So, but this journey down the rabbit hole that I describe as neuroscience and philosophy kind of altered. I don't get depressed anymore. I get low, but, I, but it doesn't last for long. Um, I still go up and down like we all do, but I have a different relationship with my, ex, my unfolding experience than what I did before when I would be frightened of it and scared by it and not want to get out from under the duvet for a day because it was so terrifying to step into um, a world that I found um hostile and scary and difficult um so so that's me and my work now is to try and help people have you know that similar shift if you will in how they understand their experience um and i work a lot in the construction industry where there's a lot of men of my age um, needing to work, needing to look very macho yep. and look very tough um, in a world that's pretty dog-eat-dog dog and very uh, financially focused and high risk. And when you get talking to those guys about what they really want, they, don't, they want to take their mask off. You know, they'd rather just be themselves and get stuff done in a much easier way. And that's what I help them to do, which I, and it's work I love. I just love it. Does that give you enough about me? No. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot to unpack there, my friend. However, you know, um, several things stuck. Um, one was, there's a, there's a wonderful book called Pompeii. It's, um, it's a fiction, but it's tied very close. And I've, I've had the pleasure of going to Pompeii on a foggy, windy day. So it was like a Steven Spielberg set. Um, it, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. So um, a Roman scientist named Pliny the Elder, and I've had people tell me it's Pliny, but I've, Pliny sounds a lot more friendly to me. So I stick with uh, Pliny, who, who uh, died in the explosion. And in this book, as he's just about to be engulfed, because he was an incredible scientist, his last thought is, we mistook measurement for understanding. And mm -hmm. then he dies. And, you know, all the, you know, TQM and I'm a black belt and lean and all this stuff. I, I have no reason to dismiss it but i also don't see that it, it 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 doesn't create more problems than it causes because the the focus you know you said towards the end of what you're talking about about inside out not outside in and my problem with all those organ that all that od stuff 
is it pretends like people are are pieces on a chessboard. And if you right, and like if you if you understand how to move them correctly, that you'll win. But they're not. We're not. <laughs> we're not pieces. And a, a wonderful guy named Bill uh, Taggart, I overheard speaking, and I wrote down what he said. He said two things you develop before you need them are relationships and capabilities. He said you manage things and you lead people. People are not things. If you treat them like things, you'll piss them off. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, And and then one more thing, and then I want to ask you to extend on something. You also talked about, and these are my words, not yours, this sort of soul deadening place you found yourself when it sounded like you were making a living and doing all the, the proper things that we need to do to put food on the table and, and petrol in the car and everything. But you were, you were kind of disappearing. And I, with all the people I get the privilege to talk to, I'm always almost crushed when I hear people who tell the story of looking in the mirror and seeing a stranger. William, William Wordsworth, you know, we, we like come into the world tra- trailing clouds of glory. And then we're 40 years old and looking in the mirror. We're going, oh, my God, I don't even dream anymore. All I do is get up and moan. So you're, you're, you're a personal stuff with divorce and, and too much alcohol and depression and those things, which I really do understand in my heart of hearts, believe me on that one. And your external transformation, you know, doing what you're doing out there, it sounds like that's very organic. You know, those two things are like this and they're, they're right next to each other and kind of moving forward in the same direction as opposed to the kind of disintegrated person that you were becoming. Do you think in your work, and this is a closed question, but I'll ask it anyhow, because I know that you'll expand because I know you that well. Do you think that showing up that way, you know, being who you are and doing work that is who you are is part of how you reach your people with your message? Yeah, I, I think so. I'd like to, I'd like to think so. I don't think, I don't see in myself um, a difference between how I am here right now and how I would be if I was with a client or with participants in a workshop or with my other half or my kids or my mum, my brothers. You know, it would, it would, I see no point in trying to pretend I'm somebody other than who I am. Um, and I spent a lot of part, that, a lot of that disintegration, as you described it, I think was entirely connected to me pretending to be somebody different to who I really was. You know, was I meeting up to my other half's perspective? Well, you know, after two divorces, it, it was there was a lot of stuff going on around. No, you're not cutting it. You know, 
you know, have I got as far up the greasy pole in the management ranks as, as <laughs> others? Well, yeah, I've done quite well, but, you know, I'm not at the top. So, so what? how else do I need to be different in order to make that next move? And all of that kind of stuff, which I know isn't unique to me and it's common to a lot of people, but it it is symptomatic of that disintegration where you're you're not um, honouring who you are and your upbringing and where you came from and what life's taught you so far. And I just think being being comfortable in that, being comfortable in my own skin around that, makes the view in the mirror uh, a less lesser makes looking in the mirror a less daunting task than it did ten or fifteen years ago. Um, so. And, and it's what, you know, it, it, it's what I say to leaders. I, th- I think a leader's got three jobs, really. One is to create a vision that, that engages people and makes them want to go somewhere. The second is to find the resources to, to bring it about. And the third is to create a culture people love being in. That's it. Three job, three things you got to get right. You've got to get the vision, you've got to get the money, and you've got to get the culture right that people can then make that vision happen with that money. And... Um, um, it's the culture bit that's so so ephemeral for some people. It's difficult to grasp. You know that that mindset you described of measuring everything uh, and believing that's the truth is so ingrained in our culture. Yep. It's so ingrained. You know, it, if it if you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. And you get maxims like that. You know, William Edwards Deming, I think he was, who said. Um, if you don't uh, bring me data, otherwise all you're doing is just you're just another opinion. You know, well, when I, when I go into organisations and teams aren't functioning well, I, I listen intently to a lot of different opinions about why it isn't going well. You know, rather than dismiss the opinion, it's really important to get to the underlying patterns of relating and patterns of thinking that are getting in the way. So, um. It, it, yeah, I mean, that measurement thing is, uh, and seeing us as chess pieces on the board is, is, as, as being the, the story of, of the times I've grown up in, I think. Yep. Um, but it's dysfunctional. It, it, it's ultimately dysfunctional. And, uh, as Peter Drucker once said, um, culture eats stat- strategy for breakfast. You know, if you get a culture, a, a team working in a good culture will take a crap strategy and make it great. You know, a team working in a toxic culture can be given the most beautifully crafted strategy and still screw it up, even if they're really talented, as, as many of them often are. Absolutely. You know, the way they interact with each other, the way they disagree with each other particularly, um, matters to what to, to what they they're able to get done. So, unless we pay attention to culture, it will manage us rather than us help craft it and shape it and um, mold it into something beautiful that people love being around. Absolutely, um, and back to the data momentarily. We have data that suggests very strongly that when people have a sense of community in their office, their workplace, whatever, that they work better and harder. I mean, right? I mean, we know that. So, 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 two questions, uh, at least to think about. One is, 
where does this this sort of fuel for discontent come in our lives? I mean, we go home to our families, right? Or we go out with our friends or whatever we do that's human. And we're relaxed and we're happy and we drop our shields and we're genuine and we're candid and all those things. But for some reason, when we dress up for work, all those things get boxed, which is so it, it isn't just counterintuitive. It's it um, it isn't humane. And it causes dysfunction and dysfunction lowers productivity. And, yeah, and, Go, go. Well, I agree. I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I think what I just what came up for me when you were speaking was that I think there's, there's a there's a cautionary note to strike here. When we dress up for work, you and I are of a generation when we probably put a shirt and tie and a suit on to go to yep. work, um, and it was like dressing up to go on the chessboard. <laughs> <laughs> if you were the king, you had a Hugo Boss suit, you know, or a, a designer suit of some kind. And if you, if if you if you were a pawn, you didn't, you know. Um, so all of those demarcations are all ways of disintegrating from the real self, because you know you've got a uniform on, or you've got um, something that's depersonalized you in some way. But I. I note when I'm working with firms who are younger than I, gener uh, generationally, that that dress code thing is much more relaxed these days. Um, but there's still there's something, oh, I'm at work now, therefore I am expected to. And uh, that's, again, that's culturally driven. You know, that's, that depends on on how how our culture has grown and, and, and evolved. And and I always say to people, you can feel it. You know, it's it, it, it's an emotional thing. I I bet you've had the experience of going into a room with people who are trying to get something done, and you'll know, instinctively know, probably within five or ten minutes. Yeah, you'll you know if if it's a bad vibe, you'll see people talking over one another. You'll see the quality of listening just isn't there. Um, uh, there's little questioning, there's little eye contact, people are distracted. You can tell really swiftly whether that, that culture, like that vibe, is conducive to getting real good work done. And I think a lot of people feel it, but they don't, we don't talk about our feelings. We don't, we don't air it. We just sort of accept the way, the way things get done around here is the way it's always been. And that's how it will always be. So the status quo prevails without anyone saying, this is the way we really want it. <laughs> when I when I do live sessions, and I hope to do them again, although I like this platform for a whole bunch of reasons. When I walked into the room, if everybody was talking, and as soon as I walked in, they stopped, I knew that they were in deep trouble. Yeah, because suddenly they had to go, you know, they had to put up their shields because I was not part of their community. So yeah. let me ask you two questions. Um, when you move on, retire, get on a sailboat and disappear, who knows what will happen? Um, how would you like your clients 
to have shown the benefit, not just felt it, but shown the benefit of your working with them? What would you like to see? Um, that's a good question. Um, the, 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 the tagline, I've been toying with this type of question a lot around, you often ask what's your business essentially about? You, the, you know, the elevator test, if you could say in a short sentence, what, what is your business about? And we describe it as um, helping leaders be at their best, irrespective of the circumstances they're facing. And it's that, so, so, the, so to answer your question, the being at your best bit is I, I'm a, what I've seen for myself and I can see it in others, is that there are latent qualities we all carry. So we can listen well, we can be creative, we can suspend judgment, we can be courageous, compassionate, and empathetic. Um, they, they are naturally occurring qualities which get obscured and access to them is made difficult by thinking habits, by ingrained ways of viewing the world and viewing situations. So the more we, the, the way it looks to me is the more we, uh, the more we see that and the more we don't pay attention to or take so seriously that thinking that, that suppresses our access to those natural qualities, the easier it becomes to be more creative and to listen and to, have compassion and so on and so forth. So it's a very subtractive idea to help people be at their best. But the second bit of the phrase, irrespective of the circumstances they face, it plays more, I think, to what I feel naturally in myself, which is to stand alongside somebody in um, as they face up to challenging circumstances and be there a lot, be there with them along the way as they take risks, as they, you know, gain a new perspective on what's going on, as they try out new things and experiment with new ways of working. And I think being with them on some of that journey before they're ready to fly solo, I think if, people can look back and say, well, he helped me in that regard. Um, I feel like my, my career would have been, would have done some good. As Bill Clinton once said, we've done some good. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's how I'd answer you. I love it. I love it. It's, it's, it's not, uh, the, 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 the thing that's important in that for me is, it, is it's not telling someone what to do. It's not, I'm not the classic consultant that produces a report and 27 recommendations and, you know, has delivered my wisdom in a well-packaged document that probably goes on the shelf and doesn't get used. I'm much more interested in being alongside people as they make a speech to 200 people that I've, that I've helped them prepare or, um, or, sitting in on a meeting that's trying to, you know, unravel a really knotty problem that's had people scratching their head for six months or six years. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in being alongside people with those really critical moments because that's energising, you know, it's exciting. It's um, yeah. 
full of possibility. And I am on exactly this. Well, let's say close. It's, I'm not sure if it's exact. That would take like a week's conversation. But I think we are very close on this idea that we have these capacities as human beings for the most part. Let, let's take like sociopaths off, you know, off the table here and stuff. But we do have these capacities, which early on, I think, in our lives start getting suppressed by our teachers or our parents or our neighbors or other kids or whatever. And so we learn to sort of encapsulate these and it's scary to open them up because we may get punished. Yeah, we do. And um, I figured it out the other day, I've worked between with between 50 and 60,000 people over the past 25 years doing what I do, which is, I was astonished. I, I checked my math, but I will bet Roger that amongst those I've met a hundred who given the opportunity to be in a safe environment. And that's how I see my, my primary role as a teacher, instructor, facilitator, whatever you want to call me is to create a space where it's okay, where there, there are no, you don't get punished if you're wrong. You don't get punished if you make a mistake. And what I've discovered is that people are like, I mean, I can express my own opinion here. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to agree with it. It's like, wow, this is really fun. So my goal would be if they could at least take part of that back with them and that that could start to become the virus that infects business, the virus of transparency, of, of, of community. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So final I, question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go. I was going to say, I, one of the things that took me down the philosophy and um, uh, neuroscience rabbit hole was um, years ago, I was running a lot of what I call self-managed learning groups, which were leaders from different parts of the organization coming together for two, three hours mm -hmm. and giving each other space to talk through what was going on in their head. And then using the group in different ways to, to, to advance that and move forward. And, and the thing that um, struck me was as soon as people had a safe space to be angry or to be frustrated or to <clears throat> tell it like it was, I just noticed a change in their complexion. You know, there was a, a clearing of the air, a clearing of the mind that that opened the whole space up, the inner space in people's head up to something new, something different, a different way of looking at it. And that struck me as, you know, it just struck me as significant. And, and that's what led me down the road to see that we get so caught up in thought. You know, it's, it's, it, we get so caught up in things we take for granted as true that when we have time to just really um, dwell on that, you take life, you take a, an all pervasive mindset is life is a zero sum game. It's full of winners and losers. And I'm going to make bloody sure I'm a winner, not a loser. Right? It creates understandably and in all innocence often, it it creates a lot of competitive behavior grounded in this taken for granted, out of sight, 
unquestioned truth that life is a zero-sum game. So it, 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 it stops the exploration of, well, what if it's not true? <laughs> like, like, what if in this situation there's a gain for you to have and for me to have? That by co- cooperating together, we both win. What if? What if? What if that were accessible in a negotiation, or in an appraisal with an employee, or you know when you're trying to allocate capital to various priorities or whatever it might be, and just seeing, just just seeing the fact that hey, this might not be a win lose situation. There's scope for win win. Opens up choices for individuals that wouldn't otherwise be there if they didn't interrupt that mindset. If they didn't interrupt that yeah. that com- that conventional way, that taken for granted, always true way of operating. And that's the exciting bit. You know, it ain't rocket science. It, no. It's about having the awareness to see when you're being hijacked, as I get emotionally hijacked into seeing a situation through just one lens, which is understandable given we've done it so many times before. It's understandable given it's so endemic in our culture, but is it effective? Is it helpful to you and the people you're working with who are trying to achieve a goal that helps somebody else? And often the answer is no. Um, so. Yeah, I'm on my hobby horse, but I no, but no, I, no, and, and and you know what if we're not prey animals anymore? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So, which means I don't have to, I don't have to see you, I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to label you, Roger Martin, as this could be a threat. Yeah. Therefore, I need to be on my guard. I need to keep my shields up. I need to make sure that my my sword is loose in the scabbard. So if I need to pull it out, I can. And it's better to stab you than take the chance that not stabbing you will cost me. And that's you're right. It is, but I don't think that that needs to be our default setting anymore. Because you know, as we've said, there is so much more that is that is within us. Which, if we can just free, if we can take the chains off, if we can take our armor off, et cetera, et cetera, there's so much more power yeah. in that community, connection, humanity, empathy, all those things that we have buzzwords for. That, and I think it's changing. I do think it's changing. You know, we, I don't think we would have had this conversation 25 years ago. Well, I, I don't think I'd have been able to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would I would agree with you, and and in that sense, you know, it's 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 um, comforting, I think, to be part of that change. And I agree with you. I think it is. I think it is changing, and and there are still big divides we have to bridge. You know, whether they're racial, whether they're economic, whether they're gender based. Um, uh, there are still big divides to to to. To resolve, but even there, I think there are signs of progress. Now, now I know you have a family. Do you have grandchildren? I do. Good. I to, no. Don't ask me how many, because I'll have to. I'll have to. 
I'll have to start adding them all up because they're, they're, <laughs> they're, 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 gro- they're growing. But uh, uh, we've got one coming in December, then we've got one, two, three, four, five, seven in total, and step-grandchildren from my previous marriage as well. So enough for a football team there. I love it. And when you're talking football, you, you mean soccer, of course. I mean soccer, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, I, I have more and more friends in the UK. So I caught okay. myself instead of gas, I said petrol. Yeah. Which is so un-American. I mean, that's not how we say it, you know. So, my final question for you is: somewhere down the line, when you have moved on to a different sphere, your grandchildren, okay, come back from class. And they're talking to their parents who are your children or stepchildren. And they say, we had a, we had a history lesson today about 2020. And the teacher said that that year was really pretty hard and pretty awful and pretty, you know, devastating because your kids will have, your grandchildren will have a great vocabulary. I know. Um, So, they now ask their parents, how did granddad, that's you or whatever they would call you, how did granddad behave during 2020? And what would you like them to say? Well, well, granddad saw 2020 as the great pause. You know, it was a stopping moment in which um, I think many different aspects of life were re-evaluated by many, many people. And I had, I had uh, several experiences of it. One was to be the dutiful citizen, you know, to do as I was told. Um, to, I, I'm sort of introverted by nature, I think. So, so the, the thought of being in lockdown didn't fill me with dread. It, it was, that was cool. We did a lot of pro bono work around resilience for people online. We thought that was a contribution to make. So we did that. I wrote a book. I actually got filled with optimism by the great pause. And along with two others have written a book called, if not this, then what, which was um, prompted by the, um, the pandemic and and the idea that it, if ever there was a time to build back differently, to do things different from here on in, then this was it. So that's what gave rise to the if not this, then what um, question and the book that's followed, which is which is due out shortly. Um, so, yeah, he, he took advantage of the downtime. He wrote a book in it. He reevaluated a lot of what's important in life and emerged to the other side in a stronger place than he probably was when he went into it. And that's what I I hope we I always look I always hope we can find hope in adversity. And I think that the tra- tragedy the tragedy that is the pandemic, its upside is is it's caused reflection and caused a rethink. Um, on what life was really about. And, and for that, I'm grateful. And I just hope so many others are as well. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. You know, we can find hope and we can also assign hope. 
I think. We have that capacity and we have that choice. I'm so much closer to the people who live in my neighborhood than I was before the pandemic. Right. Because I only knew their cars before. Yeah. That's the only time I saw them. I waved when they drove by. And now we walk around. It's like a village. You know, we like walk around. We talk to each other. I know their, 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 their dog has a bad leg. And, I, and all of a sudden, we, we stand around and talk. God forbid. And yeah. that, for me, um, shines light on a, a lot of places that otherwise would be shadowed because it's just, I mean, people have this, this inner resilience and courage. So it's about what, what's stifling that I think more mm. than whether it's actually there or not. I don't think we need to do the research, whether it's there or not anymore. We need to do the research about what's holding it back. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. I mean, you know, you are seeing moves in evolutionary biology pointing to how survival of the friendliest is more apt description of our history than survival of the fittest. Absolutely. And, and, all, and all the competition that goes with that. I read a book called Humankind uh, a couple of years back by Rutger Bregman, who systematically unpacks a lot of the reasons why, you know, the kind in humankind isn't as evident uh, as as we might like it to be, um, he, he had a lovely phrase in there: "It's not Homo sapiens, Homo puppy." <laughs> um, I'm reading a book right now, which I think you would get a lot out. It's called "The Biology of Desire" yeah. by Mark with a C Lewis. Um, it's about addiction, but. Mm -hmm. You know, we're both interested in neuroscience and neurochemistry and, and, and all that stuff. And it's a very good treatise on how much our, um, our inner program can be freed if we understand that, it is, that, that much of what happens in our brain happens because of desire. Yeah. Yeah. So true. That's why I gave up smoking. I realized one day that I smoked because I wanted to stand up to my father. He was a smoker. He insisted I couldn't smoke, forbade it, but carried on himself. <laughs> I found that intrinsically unfair. I wanted to strike up my own, I'm here, I want to smoke, I'm going to bloody well smoke. And I said that at the age of 17, I think it was, and smoked for 30-odd years. And then one day dawned on me, he did passed on in the meantime because of smoking-related diseases. And it suddenly dawned on me one day, I don't need to prove that point anymore. <laughs> 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 and, when, and when I realised that, along with looking at myself in a mirror, having, you know, I had a period off a cigarette, I had another one, I, I was sweating, I went white, and I felt unwell. I looked up, caught myself in the mirror and what more evidence do you need? This isn't good for you. But it was shortly after that, I, I got into, why did you start? And it was to stand up to dad. And that, that reason no longer held true. But of course, I hadn't tested it. I hadn't seen that. And once I saw it, uh, from that day to this, I've not 
craved a cigarette. I've not wanted a cigarette. I've not had a cigarette. It doesn't even enter my consciousness as a problem. Um, so I'm grateful for that too, really. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. We have to find the plug before we can pull it. Yeah. Yeah. But doesn't it feel you can't good? Be told, you can't be told. You can't be. You've got to see it. I call it realizing for yourself. You know, it, it's people like you and I and the work we do. We can point in a certain direction, but but the but the the real transformation comes when a light bulb moment goes on, yeah. or insight happens, or people go, "Blimey, did I really once think that?" You did. <laughs> One of my and, favorite, uh, one of my favorite professors. Once I, I had great school. I'm, I'm very, I'm so blessed by that. He once looked me in the eye and he said, "I can explain this for you, but I can't understand it for you." Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's a good term. I like that. I like that. Well, I have got to move on. I will. I don't mean like permanently, but for now, um, I will, this will probably go live in a couple of weeks because I'm very busy right now, but I will, of course, let you know and give you all the links so you can promote the hell out of it and all those kinds of things. This has been such a pleasure, Roger. Um, I, I wish that you lived next door so that tomorrow morning we could talk <laughs> on the way to our cars as we went to the grocery store. Yeah, or go for a beer or whatever. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, my thanks, friend. Thanks, Max. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. It's a real pleasure. Have a fabulous weekend, brother. You too. All okay. the best. Bye. 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 Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.